Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. My name's Dr. Beach. I'm Rex Hunter. How are you both? Yeah, very good, Bron. Good very to see good. you. I'm good well. to see you too. Yeah. Pleased to hear it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tim, for Vital Bits. Tim was um, a very temporary member of <laughs> Radio Marinara this morning. We signed him in. <laughs> we did. Um, and uh, thank you very much, Kent, who is panelling for us today. And thank you, Andrew, for Soulful Bits. I think that's all our thank yous. Heartfelt. Yes. That's right. Today's program, shortly we're going to be joined in studio by Nicole Mertens from the Victorian National Parks Association. She's going to be telling us all about the 15th annual Great Victorian Fish Count. It's kicking off, actually kicked off yesterday, so this weekend. And they have a different theme each year. This year's theme is Our Marine Life Rocks. 15 years. What an amazing thing. Is that that quite wonderful? Cheers my heart, warms my heart on this somewhat chilly November morning. Mine too. How many fish have they counted in 15 years? Good question. Let's ask Nicole (laughs) when she comes in. So this is a a giant citizen science project, and as you pointed out, Dr Beach, it's got bigger and bigger every single year. Um, It's a very, very nicely run program. runs over about four weeks. They have some pretty cool artwork. They have a different T-shirt each year. That's important. Yeah. Nice way of collecting data too, be able to spread it out so far. Yeah, that's right. So anyway, we'll be speaking with Nicole about the Great Victorian Fish Count and how you can get involved. You don't need to be a diver. You don't even need to be a snorkeler. There's something for everyone to do. Uh, then, special in-guest studio. Special in-guest studio at the risk of overkill with the RV investigator. Um, <laughs> last week we had uh, live from the investigator, that is about you know, north of Darwin somewhere, Damien Callahan, um, and others talking to us and... Ship Dr. Darwin a couple of days later, and I thought it'd be nice to get Damien and Dave, um, David Hill, who is from Melbourne Uni, Damien from Deakin University, who we were talking to last week, in the studio to just to talk in a bit you know, without the sat phone and all of that, to talk about shipboard life, what it's like on a, a boat like that, well, hardly a boat, it's a 97 metre ship, for three weeks, very expensive thing to run, operation to run, how keen people are, the sense of obligation I think they have to, to get an enormous amount of work done mm. and how exciting it is. So we're going to yeah talk through that a bit more as opposed to the hardcore science which we did um, kind of last week. Awesome. Yeah. We won't know what to do with ourselves. With um, We might have to kind of come up with a really shonky sounding sat-nav <laughs> connection. I, 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 do, I do like the sat-nav nav thing, sort of the, the, the peeps. You know, it definitely in the, in the it lended an air of authenticity. Well, post authentic. <laughs> you say like a shonky, like we got it, like <laughs> manufactured the whole thing. Uh, really looking forward to this. And then Rex, we're Let's, going back to basics. Back to basics. It's back to uh, back to grade school, and uh, I'm going to drag you up from the um, from the bottom, and uh, we're going to go out and find some shipwrecks. And I'm going oh, I'm going to tell you how. Fantastic. We've also got Dr. Surf. I forgot to mention that. He's going to be on the phone bringing us the surf report and also talking about um, Big Paddle Out, which is happening in the next couple of weeks in support of the Fight for the Bike campaign, which is still going. Right. It's been going a while. And it'd be nice to talk to Surf. Yeah. Kind of miss him. 
Yeah, me too. Yeah. Let's try and get him back in. Yeah. yeah. Get him off his surfboard. <laughs> I know. I phone. <laughs> I think he has been surfing a lot from yeah. our discussion yesterday. Anyway, he can tell us all about that. Uh, let's have a look at the weather. I was a little confused this morning. I was expecting really fine weather, and it's been a bit oh, drizzly in yeah. Melbourne town today. Uh, indeed, Brian, Brian, you are correct. It's going to be less than one millimetre. You know, there's a couple of sprinkles out there this morning. It's going to be 17 degrees today. Um, Partly cloudy afternoon winds west southwest fifteen to twenty kilometres per hour tending south to southwest in the morning then becoming light in the late afternoon. Tomorrow is going to be twenty seven degrees and sunny. There you go. That's going to be it's just sunshine for you, Bron. Nice. Uh, Tuesday nineteen partly cloudy, so dropping back down again. Tiny sprinkles of rain, if anything. Wednesday thirty two degrees. So I guess that's the bit of that um, stuff that's happening over in the west at the moment that's going to blow east, and which of course is going to. Of course, great concern for the states north of us on the east coast, that is mm. New South Wales and Queensland with all the bushfires. So, at, I don't know, my thoughts go out to those people having to deal with that and we seem to have escaped it, at least for the moment. Thursday, 29 degrees, partly cloudy here in Melbourne. Friday, back down to 20. And Saturday, 26 degrees, um, not much rain there at all, maybe. A 40% chance of up to 5 millimetres on Friday, perhaps. Um, tides, if you're heading out on the water, you'll be wanting to know what's happening in that department. At Point Lonsdale, of course, our heads, it is going to be low tide in about three quarters now at 9.46am. Low tide at 0.6 metres and then high tide's going to be a little bit before four this afternoon. Um, we're going to be talking to our very own Dr Surf later on, so I won't do a surf report. Let's wait for that later. But most importantly of all... Dr. Beach, it's slack water for divers at uh, 120 in the afternoon, a high water slack, so nice and clear. There you go. Okay, slack water at what time? 120. 120, right. So From bomb. Be, so if you're heading out in the water down near Queenscliff, somewhere like that, trying to get a swim, uh, you won't want to be dragged in or out off the head. So <laughs> no. as, um, as Rex mentioned, slack water. Brilliant. To do it. But you know, if you're going to do that, you know that anyway. A couple of quick news items. Um, Rex, you've got one. Something uh, Rick, you just wanted to mention? I uh, just want to quick mention, um, at the recent uh, archaeological con- conference up in um, Brisbane, there was a Dr. Drago uh, Gov- Garbrof, and he uh, did a lot of work in the Black Sea on the Black Sea shipwrecks. And just so happened two weeks ago on SBS, there was a, an excellent two-hour documentary on the work he's been doing there. So catch it on um, cat- uh, SBS Catch-Up. Well worth it. Fantastic. Has something else I wanted to mention as well. Um, You've been to the movies. I have. <laughs> so little little bit of backstory to this. Um, found myself at a loose end with my son the other night and I said, oh, come on, let's go see a movie. So we wandered down to our, our local, which is a classic in Elstonwick, and wandered in and, you know, thought, oh, what are the options? Uh, and saw this flyer. We were running a bit late so for the 6.30 sessions and saw this flyer and, oh, yeah, Fisherman's Friends, um, Feel good movie of the year. Anyway, walked into the into the um, just grabbed our tickets and went into the theatre and was greeted by about fifteen um, musicians standing up the front, about to launch into half an hour of sea shanties, <laughs> interactive with audience participation. They knew you were coming. <laughs> it's bronze, like, bronze coming. What is this? And the full cinema screen was just a, a solo, uh, just a single shot of waves, kind of continually rolling into the shore. It was absolutely magnificent. Anyway. Saw Fisherman's Friends and just wanted to give it a bit of a plug because it actually, as it turns out, it was a preview screening and it opens in cinemas November 21, uh, which is in about four days' time. And I can recommend it. 
It was really fun. It's kind of described on the flyer as the new Full Monty, and it definitely has a Full Monty feel about it. But the backstory is it's about a group of um, largely fishers, but also Coast Guard volunteers. And based on a true story, these people live in. Uh, I keep going to say Point Addis, Port <laughs> Isaac, not Point Addis, Port Isaac, yeah, um, Port Isaac in Cornwall. And about 30 years ago, they got together and started singing sea shanties and it, it kind of grew and grew and grew. And the story is that someone discovered them one day and thought, right, let's, let's, these Make guys are really good. They ended up getting a million dollar record deal out of it. Wow. So it is based on a true story and I can recommend that you go along. It's good fun. So our own local connection at Port Ferry as well, too, isn't it? <laughs> yes. So, yeah, thanks for mentioning that. So the um, musicians who were up front were the Southern Ocean Sea Band um, combined with a duo who are Melbourne-based called the uh, Grubby Urchins. And you can actually – the Grubby Urchins have their own sea shanty sessions um, every Wednesday night, 8 p.m. at the Brothers Public House, 42 Johnson Street, Fitzroy. So you can go along and wow. take part in sea shanties every Wednesday night if you want. Or, yes, as you mentioned, Rex, down at um, at uh, Port, Port Ferry Way, the Southern Ocean Sea Band, and they were fantastic. So we're going to play a track now. This is actually The Fisherman's Friends themselves. Uh, it is from a soundtrack to the movie, which I've just mentioned, called Fisherman's Friends, and um, this, is, this is what they sound like. They're amazing. I hope you enjoy it. It's called The Leaving Shanty. It is time to go now. All away your anchor. All Get some sail upon her. All away your halyards. All away your halyards. Tis our sailing time. Get her on her course now. All away your foresheets. All away your foresheets. Tis our sailing time. Fill the seas run under. All away down channel. All away down channel. On the evening tide. Now my days are over. All to go now all away your anchor all away your anchor tis our sailing time and that was fisherman's friends with the leaving shanty Beautiful. Amazing. Oh, so that's, that's beautiful. taken from a soundtrack to the movie Fisherman's Friends, so can highly recommend that you get along to that. 9.13, you're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Now, yesterday kicked off this summer's 15th annual Great Victorian Fish Count. It's the largest marine science citizen 
event, citizen science event in Victoria. And over the next four or so weeks, people from all across Victoria come together to collect important information on the distribution and relative abundance of some of Victoria's unique marine life. Now in its 15th year, the Great Victorian Fish Count is organised by the VNPA, Victorian National Parks Association, in partnership with local dive operators and community groups, and is supported by Parks Victoria, Museums Victoria, Red Map Australia and Coast Care Victoria. To tell us all about it, we welcome back from the VNPA, Nicole Mertens. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. Has it been a year since we had you last time? Uh, it would have been a sea slug census earlier uh, in the yes. year, I think. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. guys are busy. <laughs> yeah, especially this time of year. <laughs> so we've, we've gone from sea slugs on Unibranks back to fish. Um, 15 years, that's a lot of fish. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of the Great Victorian Fish Count? Where did it all begin? Um, yeah, about 15 years ago. And it was actually, um, I believe, initially a Museums Victoria thing. Yep. Um, but the VMPA kind of took it over and fostered it um, a few years back as well. And it's just grown and grown, hasn't it, in all that time? Yeah. Have you found that the methodologies that you've used have changed? Um, From the early days, there's a bit of a change, but we have tried to keep it fairly standard so that we do have a really robust long-term data set. Yeah, that's great. And what are you doing with the data? So at the moment, all the data is going onto the Atlas of Living Australia so that anyone can access it. And so can you tell us a little bit about the Atlas of Living Australia? What's, what's that? Yeah, so it's, uh, it is a big um, online database where anyone can contribute. So you can just make an account and, and set up a project and go for it. So our project, um, we've got a few projects on there, but the fish count is one that you can go, you can upload survey data onto, and then um, yeah, you can see where other sightings have occurred. You can have a look at all the other sites that people are going to, um, and you can get a bit of a rundown of the fish that you're finding. That's amazing. Oh, Nicole, are there any sort of uh, standout fish? You, you think, wow, I wasn't expecting to see like a coral trout in, in Port Phillip Bay or something like that? So that is one of the reasons why we do team up with Red Map. So if anyone does see a fish out there that they don't think should be there, um, we really do encourage you to make sure you've got an underwater camera with you so you can take a photo and we can confirm that. Um, I know that <coughs> a few people are very interested in seeing whether we get uh, many sightings of harlequin fish. It's a fish that we have not seen in many, many years. Um, no, no confirmed sightings, I should say. Um, we're looking at whether or not... <coughs> sorry again, guys. Um, whether we've got uh, western blue gropers. <laughs> have have a big cough, Nicole, and we can move on. <laughs> um, western blue gropers is a, another species that we thought were actually extinct in Victoria, um, but they're now as far as we can tell, coming back. So we want to, if you see a Western Blue Groper, again, make sure you take a photo, uh, send it in to us. Um, and the other thing that I know is not actually a target species, but I know Diane Bray from Museum Victoria would be very interested in seeing any grey nurse sharks in Victoria. Okay. Have there been sightings of grey nurses in Victoria? Uh, again, I don't know when the last one was actually confirmed. Okay. Yeah. But, yeah, possibly. Wow. Can you tell us a bit about harlequin fish? Yeah, so the only harlequin fish I've ever heard of are from Queensland. So this is a – it's a rock cod. Okay. Um, it's a really colourful creature. I'll, I can show you on the slate down here. <laughs> We've got our little fish ID slates that I brought in with me. So they're very colourful. They're kind of like a, a red, um, a pretty decent-sized cod, and they're, co- they're covered in all these, like, yellow and green and blue markings. Um, you do see them – I know in Western Australia they're, they're sighted around jetties and whatnot, but we haven't seen one in the bay, I, I think, in a, quite a few decades. So the slate that you've brought in, um, it's about an A4 si- uh, size. It looks like a piece of um, 
PVC or something like that and then has a whole bunch of images of fish on it. Is that something that you can provide to people who want to take part? Yeah, so our participating groups get a a bit of a welcome pack when they sign up with us. So they've got these slates, they've got a couple of T-shirts and a bit of information about how to do the count and how to identify your species. And this is our ID slate they actually use in the water. So you can actually go along and mark off the fish as you see them. Yeah, we mentioned the the T-shirt and the artwork on it. Now, you've designed this yourself. Yeah. Amazing. It's really beautiful. Can you describe the fish that's on it this year? So this is our our feature creature for uh, 2019. So it's um, the ornate cowfish. Okay. Um, and he's just a really colourful, really lovely species. It's actually a sexually dimorphic species. So there's the the males are really they're yellow with like bright blue and orange. Um, the females are yellow, but they've got sort of brown and white markings. So they look fairly similar, and they've got these little horns on their heads, which is where the name comes from. Okay, so you've got a male. Yes. Oh, yeah, amazing. Now the theme for this year is our marine life rocks. What's that all about? So uh, one thing we have seen in the data is um, there might be, from our data, we've got a few less sightings of species that occur on things like natural reefs and in seagrass beds and whatnot. But that seems to actually be correlating more with um, kind of a lower turnout in those areas. So we've got a lot of groups going to artificial structures, which is still great. You're going to see a lot of marine life, especially in the bay. Um, But Victoria's really lucky in that we have some really fantastic natural habitats just quite close to shore and and really accessible, even within the bay. So let's look at where people can take part. Um, And uh, this year, are there any particular areas that you want to focus on, Um, just in terms of representation? Are there some areas that maybe haven't got any registered participants yet? Yeah, so we've got um, a pretty good spread, but um, as always, we tend to have people concentrating their efforts in sort of Port Phillip Bay and Western Port. Um, So it'd be great if you're anywhere on the west or the east coast in particular. We've got a few groups that are active there, which we really appreciate, but we'd love to see a few more out there. So reading from the press release, I have um, survey sites already confirmed, include Rye Pier, Blagari Pier, as you mentioned. Um, We mentioned uh, an event taking part next week, um, which has been well advertised on um, social media down at Blagari here so huge representation down there um barwon bluff marine sanctuary flinders warrnambool port ferry port campbell portland st leonard's pier uh jawbone marine sanctuary uh, lakes entrance ricketts point marine sanctuary point cook marine sanctuary mushroom reef so they're the sites that are already confirmed uh so you've got yeah some some sites there but as you said you you can always use more yeah yeah that's great so um parks victoria i wanted to mention they're involved as project partners what are parks victoria doing what's their role so they will actually be uh, coordinating the any of the surveys that happen in the marine parks and sanctuaries. So if you want to get involved in one there, and that's actually a really great way to see things like rocky reefs and seagrass, um, is to jump onto Park Connect and register through there. Now, um, as we mentioned, the count kicked off yesterday. Um, presumably it's not too late to register. Absolutely not. If you're, if you're a group out there and you're capable of leading a dive or a snorkel, um, yeah, by all means get in touch with me. Yeah, and... Um so what's the best way people can get in touch with you, Nicole? Uh, best way is probably either uh, via phone call or email. Yep. And what would that be? <laughs> so my, my email address is, sorry, guys, um, so n-i-c-o-l-e dot v-n-p-a dot org, oh, sorry, at v-n-p-a dot org dot au. Yeah, great. And maybe a phone number as well for people. Yep. Might be a bit, bit easier. <laughs> no worries. Um, 0400036826. 0400, lots of zeros here. Yes, 
0436826. We'll put all those details <laughs> on our Facebook page. Do Let's do that. Um, and uh, and the finally the dates. So, uh, yeah, you can do a count any time between now and the 15th of December. Are you offering prizes? Because that's happened in the past, hasn't it? Uh, we do have a effectively a door prize. Um, it's become a little bit of a running joke because nobody has claimed it for, I think, the last four years. Right. Um, so that is for... They haven't claimed a prize? No. Wow. Um, yeah, so... Is it a good prize? <laughs> I, well, I thought so. It's a dive regulator. Um, oh my god! Seriously? Yeah. So, um, Is it, so you just keep offering the same reg every yeah, year and we, hope we someone get in picks touch it up. With the, we get in touch with the the lucky uh, name that we pull out of the hat, and we haven't had anyone call us back. So. Goodness. Yeah, me. there's still a really great prize up for grabs, guys. A reg? That's incredible. And all participants get a t-shirt. Yes. Oh, if that wasn't a reason enough. Thanks, Nicole. It's been great having you here and um, good luck with the great Victorian fish count and um, hopefully we'll get you back before, actually, if it runs. I know, we might be able to get you back before the end of the year and find out how it all went. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, We've been speaking with Nicole Mertens from Victorian National Parks Association about the great Victorian fish count 2019 Our Marine Life Rocks. And without any further ado, it's time to welcome back, it's been a long time, Dr Surf, good morning. Morning, Brian. Morning, Surf. <laughs> Morning, Beach. <laughs> Morning, Doctor Surf. How are you? I'm good. I'm tired. <laughs> Too much surfing. I've been having. Yeah, it's um, it's a very strange November we've been having because usually it's really, really terrible surf, lots of southeast winds, and we all go off and get our ears fixed or our hips or whatever. But this year it's like August. It's with constant swell, cold water. I went for a surf Wednesday morning. And it was like August. We're out in four, three sweatsuits with hoods. It was cold, but boy, the surf is good. So it's kind of like the endless winter. <laughs> it is. It's the winter that doesn't want to go away. And and I know the bimbo weather girls on television aren't happy about it, but we sure as hell are. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's still good waves too. If you want to surf today, there's a good swell running. It's probably. Head high down the Torquay area. The only problem is the wind's gone southwest, which is onshore. So you, if you want a clean wave, you'd have to fight the pack at lawn. You might get a wave at Point Road night, somewhere like that. But, you know, that's a pretty decent swell. And is that likely to continue? What's the forecast? Uh, the forecast is going to get warmish next week, and it is the winds are going to get a bit funny, but there, there'll be waves. But the long-term forecast, according to my um, colleagues, is that we're going to have more common northwest winds over summer, and northwest winds, especially down the Torquay area, means really good surf that's offshore. It also means that um, what's happening in winter is, is in winter the, the lows come up and they brush us. If you look at the, the weather map, you'll see them. It's like the spokes of a wheel going past us. And every one of them brings swell. And in summer, normally, they drop down. So they don't, they're below Tasmania. But this year, according to the forecast, they're going to stay up. The, the, the cold fronts are going to keep brushing us, flying over us and giving us northwesterly winds, west-northwesterly winds, and swell. So hopefully... The forecasts are right. Excellent. What's what's been, been happening with the disabled surfers, Doctor Surf? 
Uh, yeah, we had a day a couple of weeks ago to, to raise money for disabled surfers, which was the Point Leo Vintage Day. And it was a very successful day. And luckily it was cool because the last thing that board collectors want is for their precious boards to be out in the sun. I was about to say and vintage day. Is that is that vintage surfers, vintage surfboards, but it, it's yep. boards as opposed to the surfers themselves being vintage? Oh, no, no, no. Lots of vintage surfers. <laughs> and, and my daughter came down and she said, Dad, they all look like you. <laughs> There's all these grizzled, grey, weather-beaten, stooped, <laughs> but happy. We're all happy at the moment. So, yeah, look, the surf's been really fantastic. There's a few things on the horizon uh, I'd like to talk about. Uh, first one, next week, there's a planned paddle out, the fight for the bite. Um, I think you've had Damo on the show before, Bron, talking about this. Yeah, not for a while, though. So we, we've covered this a little bit, um, but uh, haven't really had any contact with it since, well, definitely before Radiothon. So... Yeah, what's happening with the campaign? It's still running, obviously. Still running. They're fighting. Um, uh, basically, they're fighting oil drilling in our bite. Um, and the company they're fighting at the moment is called Equinor, a Norwegian company. There's a National Day of Action next week end on the 23rd, which I think is Saturday. And what they're trying to do is to get all the surf... Um, I guess, clubs to stage a paddle out at their particular beach. And, for example, if you're interested, you can get on Facebook. I'd actually get on Google and type in Fight for the Bite and, and it'll bring it up. And, and it'll, there's a map there showing where the paddle outs are planned. I know there's one at Torquay. There's one at Gunnamatta down here. Um, we haven't got final instructions about that one yet, but we're hoping that'll go ahead. So the club's down here. Peninsula Surf Riders and Malediction that I'm a member of, we're hoping to paddle out and have a big photo taken to show our support for a fight for the bite. But there's there's a big paddle out at Point, uh, sorry, Phillip Island, down the Prom, all sorts of places. So if you're interested, get online and register and come on down and we'll have a paddle. At Fight for the Bite. Fight for the Bite. Now, was there, one, was there one other thing you wanted to mention, Dr Surf? Just quickly, those of you who watch um, national, I guess, free-to-air television would have seen a, a few shots of the Wave Garden Wave Pool, which is about to open out near the airport at Tullamarine. They had some shots on, I saw, uh, on the Nine Today show. The weatherman was there, showing some pretty good surfers riding, and I have to say, pretty average-looking waves. <laughs> I, I know they haven't dialled it up yet, but it really looked like Mornington Pier on a very very strong northwesterly. But anyway, is this one uh, of um, is this one of Kelly Slater's wave pools no, or no? No, this is this is the opposition, right? Um, and look, it's due to open in January. They're just testing it now, so that's probably why the waves didn't look too good. But keep an eye on it because I think it's it's going to open after Christmas, and there's quite a few people I know who are interested in, in giving it a go, checking it out at least. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I've got plenty of waves down here. I don't have to drive two hours to get into a swimming pool. Anyway, not everyone's as lucky as me. But look, it's, um, yeah, get down, have a wave. It's raining down here, Bron, again, which is 
good news because it means I don't have to mow the lawn. Yay. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks for that, Dr. Surf. Hey, stay tuned, dear, because pleasure. we've got a, an old friend of yours coming on air soon. Dr. David Hill is going to talk to us about phytoplankton oh. off the RV investigator. I shall stay tuned and say hello to him. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Surf. Come back and Thanks, pay us guys. a visit sometime. I've got a great CD to play you, Brian, so I might have to do that. Excellent. We'll line that up. Gospel from Aretha Franklin. Oh, excellent. Well, we'll definitely line that up. Okay. Okay. See you later. Have a good day. You See too. Ya. Bye. Dr. Surf there. He sounds very chilled. Oh, got you. <laughs> Too many waves. <laughs> He'd probably say there's no such thing, Rex. He's a, he's a happy retiree camper. He is. And we've just hit 9.37. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Dr. Beach. I'm just trying to... My microphone's just decided to go wacko at the moment. So I'm just trying it's to... It's got a mind get, of its own. There I you go. Mind. There you go. There you go. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome into the studio Dr. Damien Callanhan and Dr. David Hill, who have been out on the um, the RV investigator, that CSIRO's flagship research vessel, 95 metres or something like that, for three weeks off the north of Australia. Welcome to you both, and thank you for joining us in the studio. Thanks, Bron. Thanks, Dr. Beach. It's, it's so good to have you here. I was saying at the start of the program, we should have, we, should, we need to kind of put in a shonky sat-nav sound to our chat because that's what we've been struggling with over the last couple of times that we've had you I can, I can proxy on the it phone. with my, my cable. <laughs> yeah, <you laughs> my microphone here. Yeah, it was, a, it was a close call on that last dial-in, actually. We, I think we had like about two seconds to go before we actually got in on just in time and it connected to you guys so it was a bit sketchy because you were quite a way off the shore so you wouldn't have access to 4g or any of that so we had to bounce things off clouds but um yeah it sounded like a wonderful trip but first of all damien i wonder if you could just recap for us the purpose of this voyage yeah so the trip was about studying the well it's about the year of the maritime continent so we were up uh studying an area northwest of uh broome and um in that area, there's an, the ocean flows in through, uh, called the Indonesian through flow. So the Pacific Ocean kind of drains through the northern part of Australia between Indonesia. So there's this really unique flow of water. And then in another part, the Indian Ocean is coming up north, um, and they kind of meet in, these, in that region where we were. And so the, we had a, a ship full of um, scientists doing a whole range of different experiments. So we had oceanographers, which are interested in studying um, internal waves. So these are waves that form underwater and are involved in mixing. And there were. Uh, how, how deep are those waves? I'm sorry to stop oh, you right there, but yeah. it's like 100 metres, hundreds of metres, 50 metres. I think it goes through the whole water column, these waves. Um, at, to, so they were studying the whole depth of the water column all the way down to the seafloor. Uh, which was in some places about two kilometres deep. So they would be, on every hour they would send an instrument down to measure the fine structural details of the water mixing. So just to recap, there is a space, there is a place, sorry, on the, the northern part of Australia where the Pacific and the Indian Oceans actually meet. So it's almost like a, is it like a hybrid zone of these two oceans? Well, yeah, there's, they they, um, they kind of meet. I think there's an ocean front where they meet, um, and there's and there's a lot of energy that goes into that region. So, um, a lot of solar energy um, and heat energy. Plus, there's a lot of mixing that goes along on, and it really affects Australia's climate. So, there's we also had um, uh, people involved in atmospheric chemistry as well as the meteorologists on board as well. So, they're really trying to understand 
the whole processes that are going on there because it actually yeah. affects Australia's climate as well. And oh. I love it's got a name, the Indonesian through flow. Yeah. I get this image of, like, as you said, the Pacific draining into the, Indi- into the Indian and then water moving back the other way. But it was not only that. It was also looking a lot at the atmosphere, wasn't it? You were throwing out weather balloons or That's right. all sorts of stuff. Yeah, so, I mean... Everybody on board's really excited about everybody else's research, so we all get to have a bit of a play in what everybody else is doing. So when something exciting is happening on the ship, everybody kind of gathers around. Like all, all the, the various different scientists. Yeah, all the yeah, different no scientists. No matter what you are, whether you're a biologist, meteorologist, oceanographer. Well, it, it could even be the ship's master, the guy who's driving the ship. Might yeah. get, ex- get they all, Everybody gets excited, the ship crew. So when something's happening that's really good and fun everybody gets together and we talk about it and it gets super exciting so how many scientists are on board um i think it's about 25 28 scientists i think it can have a maximum of 35 and crew uh, about 15 crew so i think the ship can have a maximum of 60 people on right. board okay david what were you there doing i was looking at the phytoplankton okay yeah that was damien's project was looking at the halocarbons produced by the phytoplankton and no one really knows what species produce the the halocarbons so we were collecting lots of samples of phytoplankton finding some fantastic things that the technical support on the ship is just unbelievable they tell you where all the chlorophyll is which is where the phytoplankton is and they send this amazing device that can go down to 10,000 meters but we were only in two kilometres of water most of the time. It was going down somewhere between 500 metres and, and two kilometres to collect samples. And so we'd target the, the layer where the chlorophyll is, which was usually between about 60 and 80 metres. And so I, I'm going to stop you there. So the chlorophyll layer, so chlorophyll is what you find in all photosynthetic organisms. It's what yes. does photosynthesis. So the phytoplankton that do the photosynthesis in the open ocean for us if you find where the peak of chlorophyll is, then that's telling you where the peak of Absolutely. phytoplankton is. Yes, and that, that was in a, a really distinct layer, somewhere between 60 and 80 metres usually. So that amazes me. You mentioned that to me during the week, that it's, 60, it's way down at 60 metres, and I would imagine that there'd be very little light penetrating to that depth for the phytoplankton mm. to actually do their job of photosynthesis, but that's where they're hanging out. Well, of course, that's another thing they measure, the amount of light. We've got really detailed records of that. And you're right, it's quite low at, at those levels. Levels, it's it's less than what we'd use in the lab with fluorescent lights to to grow the cultures. So it's it's not highlights high levels of light at all. I don't so. want to dwell on this, but that that is such a fascinating question. It's something to do with like nitrogen and nutrient balance at, at that at that depth. Do you yeah, think? Um, well, we were quite quite surprised because we were we were initially we we're going to collect samples in the top ten meters, but then when we start seeing this fluorescence max layer. Um, and and after trying to understand it a bit more, there is a it's a, it's a dynamic playoff between the um, the nitrogen fixing bacteria at that layer, and and the amount of light that's present for the for the phytoplankton to be able to photosynthesize. So it's like right. a Goldilocks zone, I guess. And the nitrogen fixing bacteria, so they are bacteria that can take nitrogen from the atmosphere and turn it into a form like nitrate that other organisms can use because most of us can't just use the nitrogen straight from the atmosphere even though we know everything needs nitrogen it has to be converted into a form and that's what these bacteria do at 60 meters yeah so the oceans are really nutrient deplete so they have to find the spot where they can actually get enough for the nitrogen to to be able to grow and you mentioned before, Dave, the word halocarbons how you were looking at the phytoplankton were emitting halocarbons these are gases that are important in what? Why are you interested in them? 
Well, these these gases, there's a whole range of these different halocarbon gases. Some of them are in, they are thought to be involved in cloud condensation, nucleation, so the formation of clouds. And right. And in fact, we had a a group of atmospheric scientists that had a, a shipping container worth of equipment just to measure particle size distributions and types of gases. So, so this is a container that's out on the deck of the boat. Yep. And so it's full of all sorts of expensive all kit. All sorts of expensive mass spectrometers and <laughs> crazy instruments that I would never have thought you could put on a ship. And they, hang on, you're off in the tropics. So that yeah. t- did that have to be air-conditioned as well? So. That was a continual uh, battle with the air-conditioning because these instruments are highly sensitive to temperature, so they're always dealing with the heat and the temperatures, like 35 degrees every day. So and humidity, is that a factor as well? Humidity was a huge factor, yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, these these particles are um, well. They're interested in understanding the cloud formation. That's an important part of the the climate models as well. And these gases that we're studying, some of them are involved in forming clouds, and some of them are involved in actually degrading um, ozone if they get up high enough into the atmosphere. So um, we don't really know how much of these gases are being produced and why they're produced and which species are being produced. There's lots of big questions to to try and answer there, and that's that's where these cross disciplinary projects are great because you get to talk with the atmospheric chemists and the oceanographers and try and understand why is there a layer there and what's happening when the layer's going up and down and those kinds of really exciting things. And, and Dave, you're the phytoplankton expert who was on this, this, this voyage, this trip. So you were trying to find out which particular species of phytoplankton were making these halocarbons. How did you go about doing that? Well, I guess the question still needs to be answered. We just collected as many samples and and made as many cultures as we could and the, the plan is to take them back to the lab and and test them individually but i understand that you were isolating single cells into culture so that they would grow up and you would have what's called a clonal culture of just one organism in there yes how can you yeah. do that on a moving ship <laughs> <laughs> well we thought that might have been a, a challenge before but when we got out there, the, the conditions were so good. It was like being on a road. It was, uh, it was exactly the same as being in the lab. It was... Um, Mill pond calm. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> no, the conditions were absolutely perfect. It, was, um, it wasn't too much of a challenge. Which so so you, were, you were able to look down the microscope and do your stuff and isolate things. And yes. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and how exciting yeah. for you. I imagine you found new things there, new phytoplankton you'd never seen. Well... Uh, yeah, I don't know if they're new, but certainly ones we didn't expect. There are a lot of species that we'd normally find in coastal waters, so I wouldn't have expected to find them out in the open ocean. Lots of um, potentially harmful species that we routinely monitor for in, in coastal waters. Again, I wouldn't have really expected to find those out in the ocean. But harmful species of phytoplankton? Yes. Okay. In what way are they harmful? Oh, they, they produce uh, toxins that are concentrated by shellfish and that the oh, aquaculture okay. people are particularly concerned about those. Right, and you would not have expected to find them in the open ocean? Well, no, not necessarily, okay. no. It's, wow. uh, it was interesting, some of the things we found, and the, the diversity was fantastic. There are a lot of uh, well, species you'd be familiar with, the coccolithophorids <laughs> from the... Uh, I guess you'd expect to find those in the open ocean, but no, the diversity was fantastic. We found... Um, Lots of different groups and plenty of species, and I think we've got about seventy in in culture so Fantastic. far. Fantastic! That's and awesome. <laughs> can can <laughs> I go back to? Sorry, is that? A, that's, that's all right. Go. Just wanted to go back to something you mentioned before, and just wanted to make sure I've got this clear in my head. So the gases that are produced by some of these phytoplankton, 
there is a thought that that can have some uh, impact or control over how clouds form. And so from that, presumably, there's the flow-on effect to, well, literally flow-on, from potentially rain patterns, which then can have all sorts of impact on um, how far inland, potentially. Uh, well, uh, these these halocarbons are made by terrestrial plants as well. Yep. Um, and there's other gases they make. So DMS is another one that can be converted into sulfuric acid, which is a really important cloud condensation nuclei. I'm not sure how far inland this would, would impact, but it definitely can impact um, coastal areas. Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah. Tell us a bit about shipboard life. Yeah, well, it's... The conditions, but the food crap... Oh, the food was amazing. <laughs> food was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. See, that's, that's Cutting to the big one. issues. Yeah, the big mean. issues, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know there was no booze, which would be a no huge booze. issue for me. But really? Yeah. No booze, which really? has actually been great. Uh, I mean, you are actually pretty healthy. It's fine. <laughs> Did anyone kind of, you know, sneak a little flask on board? Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to say on air. Not risk that we of know of. No. no. Okay, no. that's the official line. Yep. No. So we were really well looked after, and there's... I think 15 support crews. So if anything breaks, um, there's someone there who can fix it, which is absolutely fantastic and a really highly skilled support crew. Um, there's IT people. There's huge servers on the ship, so everything's backed up and, and um, on board. And there's electronics guys. And then as soon as something breaks, like I think like the, the flux capacitor blew in the engine room and the engineers were down. I don't know what it was, but something broke and they were able to fix it on the spot. You have a flux capacitor. Uh, I don't know if it was... Is that really a thing? <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I'm just, I'm just like... Know. Know. Sound I don't know. That's what it sounded like. But, yeah, the engineers were able to fix everything on board. So they have to be able to... Because this boat goes all the way down to the ice edge, so they have to be able to fix everything. Yeah. Um, and once you're on board, you have to be completely independent. And once it's out there, it's such an expensive operation. What I remember you telling me is, what, 150 grand a day to run oh, the yeah, thing? something like that, 130 yeah. grand a day. So, and, and it runs 24-7. So the ship's like a giant instrument. Even when it's in port, it's collecting data. So it's collecting gas measurements and it's looking down into the ocean continually. It's um, And people work 12-hour shifts. And so they're really long hours every day and seven days a week. It, it's non-stop, basically. So people work in teams. Is there a big waiting list to get on board and go out and do some research? Yeah, there is. It's a big competitive process to apply for ship time. Um, so... When you get on board, you really you, you know it's a privileged time. So you it's and everybody gets how important it is once you're on there. So um, there's no mucking around. No mucking around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess there's a feeling of sort of responsibility that they've been funded to go on this ship by what essentially is public money. So you've got to make the most of that yeah, time. Absolutely. Gather as many data as you possibly can. Yeah. And it's all um, public, open to the public. So anything that's collected by the ship is open access to... So, and that's a really important point because Cyrus is pa- basically paying for it and they want it to be open to everybody. So that's a really important point. Nice. We're going to have to wrap it up now. But um, thank you very much for coming on air and sharing the stories with us, not only from the ship but also here in the studio. It's really great to, um, to hear about what's happening with um, our marine research and this, this wonderful vessel. Thanks. Good to see you face to face. Fantastic time. Great trip. Well worth it. Thanks for having us on. Excellent. That's great. We've been speaking with Dr. Damon Callahan and Dr. David Hill about life on board the Investigator. Funny lady Judith Lucy here. And when I want to find out about all things wet and salty, mm, saucy, I tune in to Radio Marinara every Sunday morning at 9am on 102.7 3RRR.
That's how Judith. Yeah, she's the only house. What an introduction. Rex. Yes, I'm here. Back to basics. Back to basics. We're going back to prep school. So I'm going to take everybody way, way, way back. And we're going to figure out a plan for finding a shipwreck. So what happens? How? What do we do? Well, first off, we need to do some research. So one of the best ways is like when a Don loves books or Jack Loney or any of those guys... Find out where you want to search, maybe Port Phillip or down down the ocean beach somewhere. Um, find a potential wreck that you think think there's good chance of finding, uh, and then there's great lots of great resources. Like if anybody's ever heard of Trove, it's a National Library of Australia have uh, digitised hundreds of Australian newspapers, and it's just a phenomenal resource. So it's word sensitive, so you can type in your name, your shipwreck or area. And you can um, then find a lot, lot of data, and some of that data might be uh, like notices to mariners. So if a ship ship was wrecked, it, quite often there'd be a, a notice to mariners because this vessel would be a hazard. So you can use that, and quite often they have fairly good positions, um, which I found a few shipwrecks from. You can use that. Also, a lot of other data um, in the National Archives, like where. Uh, during World War II, the Navy was patrolling up and down the, the east coast of Australia and from Victoria right up to um, New South Wales and above. And um, quite often they, they would uh, come across what the, uh, the corvettes thought was a, a Japanese submarine when it was in fact a shipwreck or a pile of rocks. And these would, would be recorded in a big file and held by the hydrographic office in Sydney. So I've, we've used them to find number of shipwrecks in the Bass Strait. Uh, you've got all, all that sort of data. And, um, I mean, it's not going to put you right on top. So once you've, like, you've, let's say we're going to look for uh, the Canowna off, uh, off the um, Prom. It's about 30 miles off the Prom. That sank in 1929 after colliding with the, uh, another vessel. At Canowna Island. Canowna Island, yeah, that's right. where it got its name. That's where it scraped us. Uh, no, it's oh, in, it got its name from the island. Well, it scraped the island, yeah. Okay. So it uh, tried to take a shortcut between the, the two islands and got a little bit too close. So that drifted uh, about 30 miles out south in the Bass Strait, and for years and years people have been looking for this site. So I um, bet the seals know about it. <laughs> I bet they also, know exactly where it is. It's a funny <laughs> th- it's Off subject, there's a, another thing we use as a, as a, uh, a, a recognizer of wrecks is seals we call them wreck seals so when we're out in bass Strait or somewhere you see a bunch of seals and in the area looking for a shipwreck bingo generally you have oh, what, why is that it just because they it's an artificial reef and it's just a big supermarket right okay oh, yeah lots of fish and fish. things and, yeah so it's it's a indicator of a shipwrecks and just about every shipwreck we found bass Strait. The first thing you see is a seal. It's floating around. Well, there you go. There's something at the top of the list for someone who's looking for a ship. <laughs> Look for the seals. Hey, Rex, we've got about a minute left. I'm wondering whether we might split this into a two-parter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, you can use. Like, we got the data from the uh, hydrographic office regarding the site. Went out with a, ma- a magnetometer, mowed the lawn, uh, and after about two hours, we, we found the site. Hmm. So it um, doing a uh, planning your strategy. Being logical, getting good data, uh, allowing enough space, uh, room, working out your ser- size of your search lanes, working out what, whether you're going to use side scan sonar uh, or magnetometer or even Google Earth. 
and they all work in finding shipwrecks. Fantastic. This there you shall go, be list- continued. <laughs> there you go, listeners. I hope you've been taking notes. You can now go out and find your very own shipwreck. So after about tw- over tw- 21, 22 shipwrecks, uh, it does work. <laughs> And, of course, if one does find a shipwreck, you've got to be a little bit careful about getting down. It needs down to be reported to uh, report it, leave everything Heritage there. Victoria, no touching. Anything over 75 years is protected under the Historic Shipwrecks Act. How many shipwrecks have you been involved in discovering? Yeah, about probably 25. Wow, that's amazing. So, uh, yeah. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.